everyone and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is covering um, people and their mental health journey. My name is Melissa Wilkinson and I'll be your host today. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Pharmaco Australia. Supplies of CareSense blood glucose monitoring systems, always read the label and follow the directions for use. Your healthcare professional will advise whether these products are suitable for you. We've always referred to www.pharmacodiabetes.com.au. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Grant Cinnamon from the Bella Menso Brain and Behaviour Centre here with me. Welcome, Grant. Dr. Grant Cinnamon is a clinical psychologist, founder and director of clinical services and research at the Bella Menso Brain and Behaviour Centre on the Gold Coast in beautiful Queensland. Dr. Cinnamon has lived with type 1 diabetes for more than 40 years and has a child also living with diabetes. His research and clinical experience as well as his lived experience with diabetes will provide invaluable insight today into the mental health of people living with diabetes as well as the mental health of clinicians. Welcome Grant. Today we'll be discussing the mental health journey of people living with diabetes and how that can impact. From a patient perspective, how do people living with diabetes process the mental aspect of diabetes and its implications. What are some of the mental health conditions commonly also seen in people living with diabetes? So, hi, Melissa, and wow, that's a really big question. And I guess that's really the crux of why we're here. I guess, first of all, let me say that it's wonderful that we're talking about this incredibly important and within the diabetes community, quite pervasive issue. The relationship between diabetes and mental health is not really a simple one. And it's not really a straightforward one to provide an explanation I have a conversation about. Uh, so I'll do my very best to break it down and, and simplify it for everybody. And I guess the Great. first thing to really be aware of, the thing is, when it comes to dealing with people with a chronic illness such as diabetes, it's that we tend to be very, very poor reporters of our own mental health, particularly when you use the sort of common stereotypical questions and formal measures. Um, now, this is because... Our baseline for stress, anxiety, for mood dysregulation, for all these types of things is much higher than a typical person in the community. And so we don't often recognise the things that we experience every day as really being symptomatic of high stress or anxiety or depression. So when you ask, hey, Grant, how are you doing? I'm just as likely to answer, hey, Melissa, I'm doing fine. You know, same old, same old. And why is that? Well, it's because after, you know, well over 40 years of living with diabetes, I don't really have anything else to compare my experience to. So I'm unlikely to appreciate, you know, I, I can't really appreciate what I'm dealing with or what I'm feeling is in fact anxiety or even unusual. So sometimes we've got to kind of be a little bit more creative and, and delve a little bit deeper because it is very hard to get that initial report on how things are. The other thing that's about that is if we're dealing with younger people um, or if we have, you know, a husband and wife come in to see us, for example, often the person with the condition will be reluctant to talk about some of the challenges they may be having. If you're a teenager and um, you start talking about having feelings of depression or anxiety, suddenly parents may want to peel back some of those um, reluctant freedoms that they were going to give you. And similarly, if we have a partner with us, um, we don't want to worry them. So we might be a little bit more likely to under-report what we're really experiencing. So that's something to be really aware of in this space as we as we sort of kick off this conversation today. I guess the other thing to say is that the characteristics of people who are diagnosed with diabetes is fantastically diverse. We come from all walks of life. We're economically diverse, ethnically diverse, geographically diverse, culturally diverse, gender diverse, sort of age of diagnosis diverse, educationally diverse, all of these things. And this fact alone means that there'll be people living with diabetes who are also likely to experience all manner of mental health challenges that aren't necessarily related to their diabetes. These are mental health challenges that are the same as everybody else in the community may experience, but these mental health challenges are then potentially going to have a substantial impact on our diabetes management and the experiences of life with diabetes in general. So, you know, various mental illnesses are going to affect things like motivation, concentration and attention, our capacity for self-care, social engagement, appetite, sleep, exercise habits, and a host of other factors that are relevant to the management of diabetes. So this is the first thing to be aware of, and that is just because you're dealing with a major chronic condition 
doesn't mean that other very relevant and potentially impactful other conditions can't also turn up on your doorstep. may not be because you've got diabetes, they may not have anything to do with your diabetes, but they're going to be there and they're going to impact your diabetes, first thing to, um, to say. Now, if we put the basic idea that people with diabetes are just as vulnerable as others to mental illness and focus on, say, the specific relationship between diabetes and mental health, let's look at that for a moment. So, first of all, there are the kind of early diagnosis mental health challenges that we might have with diabetes, adjusting to life with a major chronic illness. Um, so we have, in mental health terms, we have something we can call adjustment disorder. We can have major anxieties. We can have depression around grieving um, for the fact that we've been diagnosed with this condition. There can often be oppositional behaviours, oppositional defiance. We kind of resist the idea that we have to do anything. These are all examples of things that are quite common in early diagnosis. And these issues have a major impact on things like behaviour, emotional stability, our ability to engage and remain engaged in school or work or relationships, all of those kinds of things. So early diagnosis, we have these kinds of resistance, anxieties and depressions that can uh, be present. Second thing, over the longer term, even if someone initially adjusts pretty well to diabetes, there's this what we call a disease fatigue factor. So, you know, let's be really clear about this. As someone who's lived with diabetes, I said, well over 40 years and, and has experienced diabetes as a parent and as a researcher and as a clinician, as well as um, somebody who lives with it, diabetes sucks. No one's going to tell you otherwise that lives with this condition or is close to this condition. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year condition. You can't have a day off. You don't get a holiday. No one can really take up the job for you. You have to be present at all times. And even then, things can sometimes go wrong, so, you know, so to speak. So there is this need for constant presence of mind, awareness of situations, counting our carbs, taking medications, dosing insulin, all of these things, uh, getting enough sleep, exercising, diet, the list goes on. And this is all part over time of what we call disease burden. And disease burden can result in burnout or what I said we, we call disease fatigue. When this occurs, things like uh, depression um, and other related mental health issues are the thing that is most common to be experienced. You may see things like anger outbursts, deep sadness, despair, full-on depression, huge loss of motivation, uh, and what we call anhedonia, or just a loss of interest in the things we're normally interested in. Oppositionality, anxiety, acting out, um, cognitive fatigue, uh, loss of concentration and attention, poor memory. All of these things can be a potential element of this kind of long-term disease burden and fatiguing. So once again, there can also be off the back of this, those significant issues with work or school or relationships, other important elements of our life. Um, and that includes the actual management of diabetes itself. So there's this sort of immediate diagnosis thing that can happen. There's this longer-term issue that can happen in diabetes. And then in both short and longer term, there are mental health issues that can be related to the diabetes management itself. So things like increased blood sugars are associated with poor mental health in the immediate term. So uh, anyone who's been around me when my blood sugars are up, for example, will know I become the grumpy pants in the household. And certainly when you're in a hypo state, when your blood sugars are very low, this causes confusion, it can confuse anger, it can cause intense sort of emotionality, uh, lots of different challenges like that can also take place. And then over the longer term, sort of chronically elevated blood sugars or chronically poorly controlled diabetes is associated with more substantial mental health issues because of the, the changes that that can produce in um, microvasculature of the brain and, and other accumulated sort of, um, you know, effects um, as, as complications arise. So those things can all be quite, um, quite significant. The other side of that life with diabetes and management of diabetes is what we call diabetes distress and specific distress associated with elements of living with diabetes. So fear of hypos, fear of finger pricks, specifically fear of overnight hypos. Needle phobia is a big one. When I deal with children who are recently diagnosed, often needle phobia is a really big issue. Yeah. Um, 
to, to manage. So these things all are directly related to the diabetes and can have quite a major impact on our mental health. The other thing to be really aware of um, is that the relationship with mental health is somewhat different between those living with type 2 diabetes versus those living with type 1 diabetes. So if I start with type 2 diabetes, um, the nature of type 2 diabetes generally means that people living with the condition will have increased um, sort of systemic inflammation throughout their bodies. And inflammation is essentially the immune system activating in response to various threats in the body. There are at least as many immune cells in the brain as there are neurons. And there's actually some debate about that. You know, some argument is that there's a sort of a one-to-one -one ratio of immune cells to brain cells. Others argue that there's as many as 10 to 50 times more um, immune cells than neurons in the brain. So whether it's a one-to-one -one ratio or higher than that, the reality is that our immune processes have a big impact on brain function. And so that can really impact, particularly in that inflammatory state that is associated with type 2 diabetes. And the thing the literature will tell you a lot about in diabetes is depression. Uh, and that is largely around this kind of notion of type 2 diabetes and depression because um, of the inflammatory characteristics of the condition. So why is that? It's because if you've got inflammation in your body, you're going to have a corresponding inflammation in your brain because of the immune cells in your brain. And some of those immune chemicals that are involved in various elements of immunity in our body associated with that inflammatory response also have a, a neurotransmitter role in the brain. And this is a really amazing thing about our brains. And so these, these largely immune chemicals also are neurotransmitters. And the role that some of them play are around things like cognition, so learning and memory and things like that, and also around mood regulation. So when we have systemically sort of dysregulated immunity, i.e. inflammation, it's likely that we're going to have that within the brain as well, and we're going to have then corresponding challenges with mental health and, and neurological function that's associated with it. So in type 2 diabetes, we've got a much higher prevalence of depression uh, than what we have in, say, a comparative non-diabetes population. On the other hand, people living with type 1 diabetes uh, are more prone to anxiety-related conditions rather than depression. So depression still certainly can be there, but anxiety seems to be more of the, the major kind of concern when we're looking at those two sort of mood and emotion challenges. Now, yes, this can be associated with what I was talking about before with the diabetes distress and those specific fears and phobias, um, certainly is the case. However, the research also suggests that those individuals who are predisposed to have type 1 diabetes often show higher anxiety symptoms in their pre-diagnosis lives as well. So that kind of suggests that these anxiety characteristics may actually coexist in people with type 1 diabetes rather than just be a result of their diabetes. Does that make sense? And so in my own research, um, in both children and adults, this is exactly what I've found, and uh, that anxiety is a really, really common factor. So, for example, in children with type 1 diabetes or children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes, at any point in time, uh, around 30% of them will have anxiety symptoms that are sufficient for a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. And an additional roughly further 30% will have substantial symptoms of anxiety, so they're kind of clinically relevant to our mood and our behaviour and things like that, but may not at that moment in time present with sufficient sort of severity to warrant a diagnosis. So what the research suggests is that at any point in time, up to about 60% of children and adolescents living with type 1 diabetes are being substantially influenced by anxiety and that probably at least half of them are meeting the criteria for a diagnosis at that moment in time. And that's a very substantial number of young people with the condition. What's really interesting is that in adults, the number of adults living with type 1 diabetes demonstrating these, these anxiety symptoms is also about 60%. And these individuals will either have anxiety, and the majority of them are anxiety, or they may have a combined anxiety and depression together. But those individuals with the depression 
or combined anxiety and depression are more likely to have things like the disease fatigue, so they've had the condition for longer term. They may have a history that includes sort of severe hypos, so that's a hypo that's resulted in loss of consciousness, um, or um, have the onset of certain complications that can also contribute to underlying um, factors that may contribute to the depression. In adults living with type 1 diabetes, the total number of people living with a mental health challenge is around about up to 80%. Uh, that's a massive sort of four out of five could have something that we would say is clinically significant. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a fairly astounding sort of number. The additional 20% um, to make that number up, there are other things such as um, extreme anger outbursts, sort of like what we call hypomania, so a little bit like bipolar in sorts, but more associated with anger and, and, and those kinds of emotional outbursts. Um, rather than sort of mania. And interestingly, substance misuse is quite common. And this is a really interesting thing in um, as an issue, I guess, in diabetes and, and mental health because we know that excessive alcohol use, for example, is not, not really a good idea for anyone living with diabetes. But there have been several studies done in, in several countries, including Australia, <clears throat> that have looked at this use of substances and other high-risk behaviours, particularly in young people with type 1 diabetes, and in Australia, if you take general population, around 30% of young people, say from early teenagehood through to their late 20s, so say 13 or 14, through to about 29 years of age, they will admit to having tried illicit substances, so um, of various sorts. In the same aged young people with type 1 diabetes, the number is around 80%, so sort of almost three times higher in type 1 diabetes. So this can be a, a substantial issue. So, you know, so why do more people with diabetes make use of or at least try out substances? There's probably a few reasons, but one major reason seems to be self-medicating mental health issues, such as anxiety and depression. So there's this sort of relationship with some of those other factors and the use of these self-medicating processes. The other thing to be aware of, and, and I alluded to this sort of right at the beginning of this um, sort of long-winded explanation, Melissa, is that sometimes people with a chronic condition and not very good at reporting their own status. Part of that um, can be sort of a lack of awareness, but another part, as I, as I mentioned, can be what we what we call masking. And people with a chronic condition are often very, very good at masking. And so that's likely to mean that some of these statistics, particularly where the research has been self-reported, may actually be lower than the actual rates. So, so uh, there is quite a strong relationship between um, these two factors. Finally, the last thing that I want to mention is something that I've seen a massive amount of evidence in in my own practice, particularly over the last decade or so. So I see a significant number of people with diabetes in my practice, uh, particularly, again, type 1 diabetes in my practice because I have a large focus on young people and young adults. And in my practice as a clinical psycholo psychologist, I've got patients from sort of Cairns to northern New South Wales, and they're often referred due to factors such as, you know, poor diabetes management, school refusal, uh, work challenges, significant emotional dysregulation, behaviour, huge anxiety and phobias, adjustment to their diagnosis, other similar issues. In far more cases than not, anxiety is there, and I've already talked about that. But what I'm also seeing and diagnosing really commonly is both ADHD and autism. Um, so my experience is that neurodevelopmental disorders are also quite common in people with type 1 diabetes. Okay, great. Thank you. Diabetes, distress, burnout and depression seem to be more common or more commonly discussed. What's your, what are your thoughts on that one? So I guess the first thing is absolutely. Um, they're very commonly discussed. Uh, I think the reason depression is so commonly discussed in diabetes is, is along the lines of what I was just talking about. You know, there is more prevalence in community of type 2 diabetes than type 1. And therefore, if you look at diabetes as a whole, you're going to see depression more common than other conditions in diabetes. Um, however, wow. when you break that down into type 1 and type 2, you, you are likely to see a different story. And certainly my research and others uh, are seeing that quite clearly. So that's the first thing. Yes, lots of depression. Um, there are legitimate reasons for that across both type 1 and type 2. But the, gen the general idea of depression, particularly associated with sort of inflammation and, and the processes in the brain associated with that, are more within that realm of, of type 2. 
And in fact, in children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes, um, in my research, I found the prevalence of or the incidence of um, depression to be about half of the non-diabetes participants in my research. So there was around about 3%, I think, from memory. I, I can't remember the numbers I'm talking about, but I think it was around about 3% of non-diabetes children and adolescents that were in part of my research were sort of displaying elements of depression. It was about 1.5% of, of the actual type 1 participants. So it was actually less depression in type 1 in that instance. That changes in the adults with longer term, sort of having had the condition for longer, as I mentioned before, but that's, that's what I would sort of say about the depression element. Diabetes distress, absolutely. This is a 24-7 condition. You can't get away with it. And it is frustrating and scary sometimes to have to manage it. You know, fear of overnight hypos, fear of hyponing at the wrong time. You know, those things can be quite a fearful issue. Um, distress around finger pricks, distress around um, needles, the phobia associated with that. All of these things can be quite concerning. So, yes, diabetes distress and the fear associated with even concerns for the long-term challenges associated with the condition can be very, very difficult to deal with, particularly if we have characteristics like we might see, I was alluding to things like ADHD and autism before. If we've got individuals that are showing some of those characteristics, fixations on particular things can be very, very difficult to shift. And if we start to get fixated on the negative elements of, of the what could be's, what may be's in the future, that's going to be quite a cause of anxiety and concern. So that's that's a big thing. And burnout certainly um, is, is a massive issue. So big problems in people with diabetes, and it's a big problem that um, people with diabetes are typically unable to identify this stuff in themselves, um, and therefore the reasons, again, that I talked about earlier. The, the most obvious problem when we start to talk about things like diabetes distress or particularly burnout is that, there's going to be a decline in self-care and, and care in those diabetes self-management practices. So what do um, diabetes educators do um, to sort of manage this or minimise it? Knowing your patients is really important. You need to be able to detect those changes in presentation, those little shifts that can indicate something's different ask questions about their routines, about their social interactions, ask questions about their hobbies, about their family, so that you can get an idea of whether they're doing things differently to the usual or whether they've stopped doing the things that they normally do, particularly those things they normally enjoy. If, if they've suddenly stopped doing the things that they get pleasure out of, they're indicators that we've got burnout and possible depression and things like that. These are key indicators of decline in mental health from things such as burnout, and they're things that a diabetes educator can or a clinician can do in a session that doesn't have to sound like grilling it doesn't have to be a sort of a you know a 20 questions under the spotlight scenario it can be a conversation that can give you a bit of an indicator the language that um that you'll hear people use in a in a, a clinical consult may also help are they being too detailed in their descriptions of things are they more detailed than usual? So, you know, this may suggest they're trying to overcompensate for a lack of action or a lack of interest. Again, that's that masking process. So, you know, wow, that was a whole lot of detail for a very small question. What's going on there? And equally less detail may indicate something similar. So listen to the language being used, listen to the actual words, the descriptions and so forth. That would be one thing that can be done proactively sort of at each session. What I'd really be advocating for is preemptive education and setting indicators with your patients. <clears throat> and this is equally true if there's any parents listening or there's partners listening um, or, or there are people living with, type, with, uh, with diabetes listening. Think about preemptive indicators with your partners, with your clinical care people, with those other people that are involved in your life so that you can set a scene to identify stresses, identify warning signs, identify the presence of vulnerabilities that may lead to burnout, may lead to challenges with mental health and so forth for you as an individual because they may be different for to what they might be with somebody else as well. So the most important question you can ask your patients or the most important question that can be asked of someone um, each day as a check is this, how do you know? How do I know? 
how do you know you're doing okay? How do you know that you need to pay more attention to what's going on? How do you know whatever it might be? This how do I know allows us to reflect on the actual facts of what's been going on today rather than trying to get someone to give you a feeling or an opinion on things. So look for the evidence, but look for it in a way that if possible is preempted so that it's not going to come across to the person with diabetes that you're interrogating them, that you don't trust them, that you know that they're only a number. Those kinds of things can be quite challenging for people with diabetes in and of itself. So preemptive, say, hey, how do we do this as a team? What do we do? So we check and balance all the time. That's really, really important. By setting sort of answers to these types of questions, you're going to help patients to identify those early warning signs and to have more control over what's going on and at what point you're going to grab that go bag and do something about it. So that's really important. So I guess let me give you a personal example of this, Melissa. Um, I love music. I'm always listening to music, or if not music, I'll have a sort of fiction audio book playing. These are my relaxation ways of switching off. And I'll do that whether it's for an hour or two of my day off or whether it's for 10 minutes driving in between places. That's what I do. So when I'm in my good place, that's what I do. If you get in my car with me or you grab my headphones, that's what you're going to hear on my my phone or my uh, stereo, whatever it might be. However, I didn't always understand this about myself. And a few years ago, one of my best mates got into the car with me. And as I was driving off, he said, you know, sort of, right, Buffett, that was that was what he called me. He said, right, Buffett, we got to get away. It's time for a big weekend followed by a week of doing nothing. He said, and he said yeah, you need a holiday. And I kind of laughed at him and said, well, why was that? Um, you know, what makes you think that? You know, I'm fine, blah, blah, blah. I'm doing okay, a typical thing. And he said, I can always tell when you're getting burnt out because you start listening to talk radio. And he was right. I realised at that moment that whenever I started to get stressed, whenever uh, you know I was getting burnt out, whenever things were going in a downward trajectory for my own mental health, I would start being interested in what the world around me was doing. I'd start to put on you know, the, 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 the news radio or the talkback radio stations instead of listening to music. And to this day... That remains true. That if I get up in the morning and I flick it onto a news station instead of onto, you know, my favourite Spotify playlist, I got to stop and go, whoa, hang on, how am I doing? So that's just a little example um, from personal experience uh, that I know maybe that I'm in need of some me time. So that question, how do I know, for you to be able to ask that to your patients as a CDE or be able to ask that to your partner or your children or, or to yourself, is really, really important. It allows you to identify those early warning signs early enough to, you know, hopefully avoid the fall. The other thing I'd say um, is essential and even more important than identifying the warning signs is to identify those early stresses. Um, you know, when we only use warning signs, we're already at a point that things are headed downhill uh, and then we have to turn it around. However, if we understand those stresses, the things that, that are going to make us vulnerable to burnout, and we identify when those things may be increasing or when we're going to be more vulnerable to those everyday elements of that, we can increase our actions to avoid that burnout, to mitigate that impact before they have a chance to do any sort of damage um, to us. So this is about, about identifying those individual vulnerabilities to stress, to anxiety, to fatigue, and ultimately to burnout. And the uh, uh, ultimately resilience is going to be the key to preventing and managing that. And very, very clearly, um, just sort of lastly on this point, is the research tells us there are three elements to resilience that are essential. One is predictability and stability. So having routines, having plans, having knowledge in advance, really important. Nobody will successfully manage diabetes without a routine. Let's be absolutely crystal clear on that fact. It is one of those conditions that respond very, very well to good routines. So have that predictability of of things gives you more sense of control and ironically having good routines and structure gives you more flexibility and that's a really sort of paradoxical saying but incredibly true gives you stability gives you control you need to have a hobby for resilience you need to have an outlet for your mind and body exercise you know pet whatever it might be for you something that helps you spring the jack in the box before it gets so tightly wound up that it's going to explode and cause damage regular resets with outlets very very important and the third thing is social affiliation the single biggest predictor of poor mental health and by the way it's also the single biggest predictor of poor physical health and early morbidity 
is social isolation. Get connected, get your patients connected, get yourself connected if you're living with this condition, get your partners, get your children, get your parents, people that you love and live with who are living with this condition, get them connected, be connected to them. Really, really important um, as part of that developing resilience. They're the keys that we can do and how we manage burnout. That's great. Grant, thank you so much. Um, lots of good tips there for us all. Um, how often do you think CDEs should discuss the topic of mental health during their consults? I'll, I'll try and answer this one briefly um, as opposed to the last couple for you. Look, the, the simple answer is at every single consult without exception. This should be built into our checks and balances. We set that scene really early. Don't be afraid. Don't skirt around the topic right up front say you know what you are both the carer and the patient in this condition and so therefore we've got a double responsibility to make sure you're doing okay so every time you and i get together we're going to touch bases about this stuff let's work out the best way for us to do that so we can get the best sort of idea of what's going on and set that plan have it there so that you can do that at every interaction um, I think that is the that is the simple way to do this. Be direct, be clear, and do it every single time you see them. Great. Um, as we know, having the conversation about mental health and diabetes is crucial in getting people to understand and manage their condition. What are some of the ways that you would bring up the topic of mental health in a consultation? I guess exactly as I just mentioned, I'd be really open, I'd be really upfront. I would be advocating really strongly for an education process. As I said, let them know that this is a self-managed illness. As such, they've got to take care of both the patient and the carer because that's what you are when you self-manage a condition like diabetes. Being both means double the impact, double the stress, double the potential problems, and, and double the need to be preemptive about things. Make a deal with your patient uh, if you're a CDE or a clinician. Make a deal with your loved one, make a deal with yourself to work out how you're going to raise this every time so that you're in agreement. So this is a plan that you're working on together rather than something that the patient, the person living with diabetes is going to feel like they're being kind of questioned about or that it's an imposition. When they feel like, when we as people with diabetes feel like we're part of the solution, feel like we're our entire human, not just our diabetes, we respond much, much better and so be open be direct spend time planning on how that's going to be done spend time working on listing the stresses and the warning signs for this individual person who's dealing with this condition make sure it's unique to them it's an individualized thing for them yes there'll be common ground across most people with diabetes but equally there'll be individual factors or the way that some of those common ground factors influence the individual so be aware of those things you know, for one person, uh, a stressor might be fear about when they take long walks because they like to take long walks on their own. So how do I manage any risk that might be associated with that versus for me, I love to get out on the water on my jet ski. How do I manage my factors around that? Just as a, as a simple example. How do you see them? How do you identify them? And then how do you manage them? And how can you be proactive in prevention rather than intervention? That's really important. Then the final one is um, what I call the go bag. What do you have in your bag of tricks that if it does happen, if you do get to burnout, if you do get to sort of substantial mental health challenges, what's in my kit, what's in my go bag that I can turn to to manage it, to deal with it, to, um, to overcome it? Great, thank you. Um, are there any resources for clinicians to use to access mental health? Look, you can use what I call the usual suspects, you know, the typical kinds of assessment measures, which are sort of standardised little questionnaires that can be self-reported or clinician-reported, sort of proxy-reported types of um, questionnaires. But again, as I said, sometimes anything that's self-reported, we might not get a really good indication. So probably the most important thing are the interactions that I've already talked about. Um, talking about what are their routines, what are their actions, what are they like, are there indications of change, is there increased risk-taking behaviours, social behavioural isolation, all of those kinds of things. So rather than um, 
looking for any sort of formalized assessment, I'd be doing that interactive process and looking for any little nuances that might flag for you. And then openly having that conversation if they do flag um, is also really, really important. If you see things that you suspect, openly talk about them and refer them to an appropriate professional um, or even a good social support group if they're the sort of person who's going to engage with a good social support group. As a clinician, as a parent, as a partner, as a person with diabetes, have your team around you that you can refer on to or, or go to who know their stuff and know what it's all about. Thank you. And I guess that leads us into the next question, which is if a clinician determines that someone does have additional um, or requires additional mental health support, what should that clinician do next? It's it's refer. It's, it's be open. So I take the process one is validate how the person's feeling, what the person's going through. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be in distress. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay. I get it. I understand that that's how you're feeling and it's okay for you to be in that spot at the moment. You've got, we've got supports. We're here for you. Let's work out where we go next. We're in this together. We're a team. I think that is number one is to validate and, and get in the sort of boat together. So you're working as a team. It's not a time to judge. It's not a time to say, well, you know, if you took better care of yourself, then maybe you wouldn't be in this spot. All of that irrelevant at that moment in time. It's just validate, get in the boat together. Where are we going from here? Be open, be clear, um, and refer on to somebody who can be that support for them. Develop your own network of who they might be. Uh, if you are not a clinician but a, but a parent or a, or a, or a partner or brother or whoever it might be of somebody make sure the relationship with the gp is good if you are someone living with diabetes make sure you've got a good relationship with your gp your endo your diabetes educator so that you know they can refer on to somebody um, who you can trust by proxy through them you know okay if they've referred them to me i know that i can i can go and see this person with a with a you know semblance of confidence to do that it seems having access to support networks is helpful in improving mental health. Where do people with diabetes go to gain access to resources and support? So one is your one is your informal networks, so family, friends and so forth. That's first. Two is your formal networks in terms of um, diabetes educators, um, medical professionals and the like. And then there are the usual groups such as um, um, Diabetes Australia or um, JDRF or groups of that nature who not only um, provide sort of formal help but also often around the country have informal groups and informal supports and information nights and social activities and things that can help you connect, help you realise you're not alone um, and often from a mental health perspective that is 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 really good medicine just in and of itself. There may be other groups that you can find online uh, that may be more age appropriate or, or location appropriate. Um, or if you're, you know, in a small country town or somewhere where you don't have as much access to social groups, this might give you a connection to a network that's a bit broader. So depending on your social platforms you use and the places you are, you can do a bit of a search online and find, um, you know, on Facebook or, um, or whatever platform you use groups that might fit that bill, uh, you know, as long as they engage in that social support uh, and uh, and as long as the person in need is prepared to engage with those social supports. That's a really big one. We need to engage in these things in order to get benefit from them, and sometimes that can be the challenge. So we may need a bit of a handholder or someone to support us along the way in the initial stages with that. Alternatively, if there isn't a group around for you, look at starting one. Whether that's you as a person living with diabetes, whether it's a parent, whether it's a partner, um, whether it's a diabetes educator or, or other person listening to this podcast, if there's no group around you, create one. You know, a group only needs to have two or three members to be effective. So it doesn't need to be massive. It doesn't need to be, you know, too formally structured. But maybe you're the catalyst that is needed in your neighbourhood to create something to provide these supports, whether it's formal or informal. And the last thing I'd say on that, uh, Melissa, is that sports don't have to be diabetes specific. Um, it, you might find supports and sport networks 
that are established around other interests um, that may give you that social affiliation um, and engagement hobby opportunities. So you may be a dog lover and you go to a, a, a dog lover group or um, you may be into remote control car racing, so you go to a remote control car racing group or, um, you know, any other number of, of, um, of groups that may be uh, around a hobby or an interest you have that provides you with that connection, that social affiliation and that outlet, which are really important elements to managing some of the things that are going on. On the Gold Coast, for example, there are groups to help with men experiencing trauma and, and, and mental health, and they've been organised around barbecues, fishing days, surfing, uh, and a whole range of other activities that allow that support. And there are equally women's groups um, that they're also around surfing and whatever else they might do, whatever those individuals are interested in, and they can be really, really powerful. They're not just about the issue, but they're about interests as well. So have a look at those as well. They can be just as effective. Okay. So what are some of the tools and clinical pathways that can easily be used um, and accessed by CDEs to access mental health support for people living with diabetes? So I guess the... the the tools I spoke a little bit about before, the clinical pathway, if you are in private practice, then you know make sure you've got good connections to the major hospital clinics and things where you might be able to access some of those ancillary services, for example, um, around mental health, social work, that kind of thing. Um, look at your private providers in your own community that can be involved. Um, so I get a lot of referrals from private practitioners and from um, sort of hospital practitioners to support um, in in my neck of the woods, and uh, and they're always welcome. We're always trying to create networks to support one another. So they're the clinical pathways, is the groups that you create, um, or the groups that are already in existence based on who your employer or who your work environment might be. Great. Um, ADA also has a Diabetes Connects, uh, which is a community for CDEs also to have some discussions on as well, if anyone would like to utilise that. From your experience, at what point can medications be used to manage mental health conditions and are some of those medications preferred over others? Sure. So uh, I guess the first thing to say, medications absolutely have their place. And uh, I'm not the medication person and I certainly can't give... Um, advice, you know, any kind of advice uh, over the airwaves. This is something that is very unique and individualised. And so um, for medications or any direct treatment, it needs to come from the relationship you've got with the appropriate specialist, the appropriate medical team. But if your medical care, if your specialist feels that it may be warranted, then I believe it should be utilised. Absolutely. It does have a place. When should it be used? Well, I guess, again, that's not my decision to make. So work with your specialists, work with your GPs. Don't rely on Facebook. Don't rely on, um, you know, me on this podcast necessarily. Don't rely on Dr. Google. Go to the source. Go to the experts. They will they will help you on that. Having said all that, uh, first thing is, you know, that having those resilience elements in your life, having good routines, regular exercise, good diet, with adequate nutrition, uh, all of those things, uh, good social connections, good sleep hygiene, good diabetes control, all of those things are going to be really important in maintaining good mental health. So we start with those direct, simple things that we have some control over. If these things aren't doing the job, then medications may be necessary. The appropriate medication is really going to depend on a range of factors and they're going to need to be instigated, managed, reviewed regularly by the specialist who understands both diabetes and mental health. Um, so it's important to have that person on your team to support you. Probably the most common <clears throat> medication would be the antidepressant um, group of medications. Um, you know, they're the ones most common for depression, anxiety-related type issues. The most common of these uh, is a class known as SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You know, these are the names such as Prozac, Lovan, Fluoxetine, Sertraline, Zoloft, uh, Cipramil, etc. They basically work through increasing the amount of neuro of a neurotransmitter called serotonin, and they increase the amount that's available to be used by the brain. So um, 
that's probably the most common one that would be used. In some instances, what we call an NSRI may be used, which in which case it works on that availability of both serotonin and norepinephrine in the, in the brain. And in cases of, say, extreme anxiety, sleep issues, this kind of thing, a group of medications called benzodiazepines or similar may be used to help. Uh, these medications work on a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is a very common neurotransmitter in the brain, um, and, and act as kind of a sedative. So they help calm um, that sort of reactivity that's associated with anxiety, um, that, that, physical, that physical arousal. They can be quite addictive, so they're used under close supervision by a prescribing medical professional. Um, uh, and, um, you know, in cases of, say, high anxiety, there appears to be an increasing use, not necessarily in the diabetes community, but in general, um, Melissa, of medicinal marijuana or, or medicinal cannabis. Bit of a controversial area still, I know, for some people, but it seems to be really helpful for anxiety and for sleep. Again, um, this is not a matter of sourcing your own and giving it a go. It's got to be obtained and managed through an appropriate medical practitioner, through prescription and, and appropriate dosage and all of those kinds of things. But there's certainly some evidence that this is um, something that can be quite effective for individuals as well. There are a range of other medications dependent on, say, comorbid issues with diabetes. But uh, one of the things that probably... Um, is, is fairly common in my experience, uh, particularly with, um, you know, working with younger people, teenagers and so forth, uh, is with the co-occurrence of um, particularly type 1 diabetes and, say, ADHD. Many of my patients with these two conditions are using an ADHD medication to assist with focus and attention and impulse control, hyperactivity, that kind of thing. Um, there are a few different types of ADHD medication, but the most common um, are what we call stimulant medications, and these work essentially by increasing dopamine uh, availability in the brain. And this in turn sort of helps increase activation in the frontal cortex to help improve executive functions in the brain. Those medications can actually help sometimes with mood regulation as well. And this is important because in terms of ADHD, more than half of all people with ADHD will also have issues with depression and um, anxiety, things like hyperarousal, anger outbursts. Uh, extreme emotional reactions and these kinds of things, and these medications can sometimes um, help with that also. As I said, there are other medications that, that may be used depending on other factors, but these these are the ones that are probably going to be most commonly seen, most commonly used, most commonly sort of experienced um, within the space of diabetes and mental health. Okay, so Grant, would you like to, uh, is there anything else you'd like to communicate to our listeners today? Um, any key take-home messages? Absolutely. So um, I know I've uh, rabbited on a fair bit this morning, so let me try to sort of summarise that a little bit into uh, sort of moving forward. The first thing in living with diabetes is it is about therapeutic lifestyle, not therapy, when it comes to mental health. Uh, I know as a clinical psychologist I, I'm involved in therapy, but I'm a massive advocate for therapeutic lifestyle. Live a life that provides resilience and protection against some of these things those outlets, those social connections, that routine and predictability and so forth, absolutely essential. Establish a lifestyle that is, is based on those resilience characteristics. Second thing is know your vulnerabilities to mental health challenges and to burnout with your diabetes. Know your stresses, know your warning signs, know your plan to manage it or mitigate those things and know your plan, have your go bag ready to deal with it when it happens. The next thing I'd say is recruit your confederates, recruit your team, friends, family, professionals, who can help you identify those warning signs, recognise those periods in your life when the stresses are more prevalent or more impactful on you. Uh, they can encourage you when needed. They can carry on those days you need to rest. They can support you in whatever is needed. Uh, and lean on them when you need them. There's no point having them if you're not going to utilise them, so make use of them. Establish good relationships with those key healthcare professionals. Communicate with them regularly. Be open and honest with them. There is no point going to your diabetes educator and saying everything is tickety-boo and wonderful when you're really struggling because we're only as good as healthcare professionals as the information we're given. And so we need that information you need to share with us, develop that relationship with us. Next thing I'll say is prevention is always better than a cure. 
So work on those preventative focus points that sort of are associated with all those things that I've just talked about. I mentioned routines are king or queen. No one manages diabetes successful without one. Routine, 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 absolutely essentials, uh, absolutely essential. Make diabetes background noise and not the centrepiece of your life. Things like routines, like structure, uh, these things allow this to happen. There is so much more for you to experience, to explore, to do in life outside of your diabetes. So the more you can make a background noise, the more you can just make it one little element of your life and not the key feature, the more successful you're going to be at avoiding burnout and avoiding those mental health challenges or managing those mental health challenges that, that may be present. For those of you who have maybe heard me speak before at diabetes conferences and, and things like that, you may have heard me talk about the notion of learning to ride the wild tiger. And that's what I kind of see diabetes as, this wild tiger. And this is the key to diabetes. You don't ignore it. You don't reject it. You don't give it more power than it deserves. You learn to control it. You learn to tame it. And that will give you the power that you need over it. Kind of learn to make friends with some of those mental health challenges. The more you try and avoid it, the more you try and reject it, the more you try and ignore it, the more you deny it exists, the more power you give it over you. The more you can kind of validate the feelings, the more you can say it is what it is, that's okay, I can move forward. I had a great saying recently that said, you can argue with reality all you like and you'll only be wrong 100% of the time. And this is kind of a real important thing to acknowledge when it comes to how we deal with this stuff. Acknowledge it. It is what it is. How do we move forward from it? Make friends with it. Deal with it. Move on. And the final thing to really say, uh, Melissa, is uh, in line with some of those last points we were talking about um, before the summary here, if needed, don't be afraid of medication. We no longer live in the dark ages. Our brain and our bodies are no longer two separate entities. We now know they're all just one thing. And so, you know, we don't think anything of putting a plaster on our leg when we break it. Um, we don't think twice about taking antibiotics if we've got an infection um, or cream if we've got a rash, but we often have this stigma attached to using medications for mental health. Don't be afraid of it. Don't accept the stigma. Use the resources available to make your life what it can possibly be. That's what I would say. Grant, thank you once again. It's been so great to talk to you today. And to listeners that have been with us as well, thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. To obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete that feedback and evaluation form um, to get those points. Also, we love to have your feedback. Um, ADA bases a lot of future education on that feedback that you provide us with, and we're very grateful for that as well for our planning for the future. Until now, until next time, I'd like to say goodbye to everyone and thank you so much. Mm -hmm.